Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 27. The topic for our conversation today is something that um, people often ask me about, and that is, what books do you recommend? And so I'm going to focus on one particular uh, segment of American history and talk about two books that I do recommend, because I think it's important that people read good material. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know, who have never been to graduate school, I'm going to talk a little bit about that too and explain what goes on there. Uh, so, uh, of course, I attended uh, graduate school at the University of South Carolina. And when you go to graduate school in, in history or other disciplines, I'm sure in you know, the sciences it's a little different. Uh, but if you go for history, you take three different types of courses. You can take, of course, knowing that your undergraduate upper-level courses are usually 300 or 400-level courses. When you go to graduate school, you're going to take 500, 600, or 700-level courses, or 800-level courses. So if you take a 500-level course, what you're essentially doing is taking an, upper, an undergraduate upper-level history course, and you're assigned some extra reading material or an extra paper. Uh, you have some, a few things to do, but it's essentially just like being in any other college course. Now, when you take a 700 or 800 level course, an 800 level uh, is typically um, a writing seminar. Uh, 700 level courses are typically reading seminars. So what is a reading seminar? Uh, a reading seminar is where you're assigned a whole bunch of reading material, uh, typically in the range of, in, in my experience, a minimum of between 1,000 and 2,000 pages a week of reading material. And you go in and you discuss said material. Uh, and you usually have about 10 to 15 students in a reading seminar. And at my time at South Carolina, there were a number of excellent reading seminars. And essentially, that's what I took as a graduate student. Uh, most of my classes were reading seminars. So uh, a couple of the best. Um, the first was European historiography with uh, Owen Connolly, who was who was the uh, premier Napoleonic historian in the United States, if not the world for a time. And uh, also Clyde Wilson's American Historiography, which the focus of those two courses was to discuss the historian and their craft. Uh, but in those particular courses, you would have discussions on major figures in European or American history and how they wrote it. And so you're discussing schools of thought. And so essentially what you're looking at in history, and if you look at different interpretations, different definitions of history, one of them that you, that you will find is that, you know, essentially there are no facts in history, only interpretation. 
And this is basically what you have. I mean, historians are in agreement oftentimes on various information that you'll find in history. Not always, but they're in agreement on information that you would find. It's just they're not always in agreement on how to read that information or how to interpret that information. And that's because people are people. They have different views and they see things differently. The best historians will often show their bias, explain that to you, and then you will see throughout their work their bias come through. The worst historians will not explain their bias, and you will think that their history is objective. Now, one of the best books that's ever been written on that is entitled That Noble Dream. And in this particular book, the author discusses uh, how the dream of objectivity is just that, a dream. The author of that book, of course, is Peter Novick. So uh, he explains very well how history is biased. And this is something that people have known since, essentially, Thucydides, those writing the Peloponnesian Wars, when he recognized that he was reliant on his sources, and his sources are going to be biased, and two people can look at one thing, and they can have two different interpretations on it. Jacob Burkhart, who is another very famous historian, concluded the same thing back in the 19th century. So when people ask me what are the best books on a particular topic, uh, you're going to get what I think are the best through my own biases. And that's why people like listening to this podcast or uh, going to learn true history or uh, whatever the case may be, because you want our biases in the history. And it's going to come through. And of course, if you don't like our biases, then maybe you would like someone else's biases. And that's the history that you like to read. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I mean, I could say that those books miss the point or their interpretations off uh, or they overemphasize something. I mean, this is the case when you get news or anything. You're going to get interpretation of events. So when people ask me, uh, you know, what are the best books on the sectional conflict and the war? Because that is such a big, important topic in American history. Really, there are two major topics in American history that are kind of like the holy grail of American history. And I think that you're getting to a third because it's now we've, we've moved away from it a fairly sizable amount of time. But the first is the American War for Independence and how that particular topic and everything that goes into it is interpreted. And that leads into the U.S. Constitution and how that particular topic is interpreted. So you've got the founding period. How we interpret the founding period. What, are, what is the legacy of the War for Independence? Is it a revolution or not? Uh, what is the legacy of the founding generation? How do they fit within the current uh, political discussion? That is an important topic. The next is this debate leading up to the war. And of course, in the South, if you say the war, everyone knows what war you're talking about. It has many names. The Civil War is not a correct name because it's not a war between people over a government. It's not The South was not trying to obtain control of the U.S. government. They just wanted their own government. So uh, it's not a civil war. Uh, you could say that the North was trying to control the government, but not the South. Uh, I think a better name for it, I mean, the, the more common name outside of the Civil War is the war between the states, which is okay. Uh, the war for Southern independence, I think, is the best name because essentially that's what it was. It was an a war for independence. The South was seeking independence, and the North was trying to prevent it. 
And so just like in 1776, that's the case that you had there, the American colonies were, were trying to achieve their independence, and the British were trying to prevent it. And so that's the American War for Independence. And so this is another period of time where you have a tremendous amount of effort put forward by historians to explain and understand what led to the war, the major events of the war, etc., etc. And then the other period that I think is becoming much more important moving forward in the modern age is this World War II Great Depression period, because it is such a turning point that leads us into the modern era in terms of government power. And of course, you can trace things back to Franklin Ro- uh, before Franklin Roosevelt in the progressive movement, and Franklin Roosevelt was a progressive, so you, c- you can have that, that linear progression there in, in terms of how Franklin Roosevelt got to power, wh- where his ideology came from, that type of thing. But when you look at the, the, the Great Depression and government response to the Great Depression, that is really a turning point. And then, of course, government response to the war in World War II. More importantly than anything else, on the home front. And one thing I have said is that the United States has never uh, left a wartime footing since the 1930s. I mean, when Roosevelt took office, you had uh, essentially a war against uh, the economic downturn through unconstitutional government means. And we've never changed, we've never diverted from that course. We still live in a wartime economy. And the talking points that Roosevelt articulated in 1944 in his what became known as the Second Bill of Rights, have become all the talking points for the progressive left. So that's also an important period of time that's starting to receive a little more scrutiny. Unfortunately, you really only have one side to that issue in your major historical works, and that is that uh, the government response to the Great Depression was legal, justified, and essential, and that the other side, which essentially is the Austrian side, which says, no, it, uh, it wasn't essential. It actually ruined the American economy. Uh, it has started to grow in recent years. And then, of course, uh, the constitutional element of that uh, is not often discussed at all. And I, I, I did tackle that in my nine presidents who screwed up America. Uh, but that is another part of it. And you did have you know, people like John Flynn uh, writing uh, you know, anti-Roosevelt uh, histories, uh, Charles Tansel, who did the same thing. So... You, you have that, and I think that's another very important period moving forward in American historiography. But I'm going to talk about that one, the war, the sectional conflict in the war, and it go into a couple of books that I think are essential for understanding this particular period in American history. Now, neither one of these books are going to be admired by the left, and first of all, that should make you want to read them. Uh, when I took my reading seminars on this particular topic in graduate school, neither one was assigned. Because one is considered to be an old interpretation, the other uh, is just <laughs> is just not going to be assigned because um, it doesn't fit with a particular historical narrative. Now, this first particular book, actually the, the author of the book has an award named after him, so he's a very good historian, But again, he wasn't even assigned in my reading seminar in graduate school. And the title of the book is The Coming of the Civil War by Avery O. Craven. Now, Avery Craven was a master historian. There's actually an Avery O. Craven Award that's given out every year in American history for a book that uh, is picked 
by peers as being the best in this particular field. But the coming of the Civil War has, was used for many years as an upper-level textbook uh, by uh, you know, various universities and colleges around the country. Now, Craven is uh, part of what's often called the Blundering Generation School. So the way he looks at the war is that the war was a product of a blundering generation, essentially the 1850s generation who blundered into the war. It didn't have to happen. The war was not inevitable. There was no irrepressible conflict. It could have been, avo- it could have been avoided, but you had radical elements on each side that created problems. And recently there was a book that came out on this particular topic by uh, Tom Fleming, A Disease in the Public Mind, where he puts a lot of the emphasis on the war and the creation of the war on abolitionists. Now, I know a lot of people get very upset with that particular thesis, and if you look at the reviews of that book, people go berserk, and I've seen uh, many uh, different websites who say things like, this is why I continue to write history, because this garbage is still produced. Uh, And one comment was on that particular book, Tom Fleming uh, came out with this thesis because he's old enough to remember when this thesis was popular. Now, essentially what that book is and what Craven, I mean, what what these are, they're post-revisionist historical literature. Now, Craven was writing before the 1960s revisions, but in the 1960s you saw revisions, and again, this was coming back from an earlier phase in American history where uh, slavery was placed at the center of the conflict and uh, the abolitionists were given a pass. Uh, that they were, what they were doing was a morally righteous cause, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in the 21st century, none of, none of us, your, yours truly included, would ever say that abolition was not a uh, morally righteous position to take. And Craven even addresses that in his book, and he says, look, uh, abolition and then political abolition are two different things. And abolition as, a, as an actual act to end slavery and abolition as a cause of the sexual conflict are much more complex than what we can simply say abolition is good, uh, and therefore everything else works off of that. And you actually had abolitionists, if you're a libertarian listening to this podcast, you know, maybe Lysander Spooner, who was against the war because he said, uh, you know, the war is immoral and illegal, and uh, this is what we've wanted for years anyways, for the slave South to just secede from the Union. Now we have our our non-slaveholding republic, even though there were slave states still in the Union. So, uh, I talk a lot about this in my class, uh, my the part of the U.S. history class, the first half, in that learn true history. So if you want to take an entire course on American history and uh, get my perspective on the sectional conflict in much more detail, I go into it a lot more there. But Craven essentially says this blundered generation, people like Stephen Douglas of Illinois, and then, of course, uh, you had the, uh, the northern politicians like William Seward, and uh, in the South, you had uh, the fire eaters. Essentially, he placed all the, the blame of the war on those people, the radicalized elements. Now, Douglas was in the middle, but of course, Douglas was doing some very stupid things like the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So you had, you had these people uh, you know, really tearing apart the fabric of the Union that had been maintained by individuals willing to compromise. And by the 1850s, there isn't much room for compromise left. And it's a meaty book. He gets into just about anything you can think of from the early 19th century until 1860. Uh, and it's a sweeping history. And 
You know, one of my favorite lines in the book, and I always remember this when I describe Americans in the 19th century, he said, Americans were a sweaty people, which is true. I mean, if you think about the labor and the work that went into producing the goods and services of the 19th century, North and South, this is a very difficult, hard-working time. And I've always said, if you were a laborer in the 19th century, it was difficult no matter where you were, North or South, it was a difficult time to be a manual laborer. Uh, and people worked very, very hard, whether they're on the frontier, whether they're in the uh, you know, old established areas, they were working hard. Uh, most people were engaged in agriculture, or if they weren't in agriculture, they were engaged in some type of industry, which, which was very hard work. Uh, not work that any, uh, you know, most modern Americans will want to do. So this was a difficult, hard-working time, exacerbated by political questions that uh, were, uh, were difficult to handle. And there's another very good book on this particular issue I'm going to talk about, too. But there's a third, if you had to say, all right, I want to read a third. It's The Political Crisis of the 1850s by Michael Holt. Holt. And essentially what Michael Holt says is that, look, this, is all, this all comes down to politics. These issues were political questions, not moral questions. The issue of slavery was a political question that had political implications, uh, meaning that it was about power and who was going to control the spoils of the general government. Was it going to be the South or the Northeast? And the West became a player in that conflict moving forward because the West had the balance of power in its hands. And Southerners recognized this, and Northerners recognized this. And when you look at the first conflict over slavery in the 1820s, or you know, the first major political conflict over slavery in the Union itself, in 1820, I should say 1819, 1820, in the Missouri Compromise, it was quite clear that the Federalists were using this issue. The old Federalists, now they were already, they already calling themselves Republicans, but the old Federalists were using the issue to try to split the alliance between the North, and I should say the Midwest, and the South. And people like John C. Calhoun were aware of this, and they started saying, look, if we don't start advocating things that the West wants, they're going to side with the North. And when you look at Henry Clay and his American program. Clay was a Southerner. He's from Kentucky. But what he wanted were the things that Hamilton wanted out of his economic program, which were uh, high tariffs to stimulate industry, uh, federally funded internal improvements, a central bank. These are things that Clay thought were essential for a quote-unquote national economy. But Clay was a Southerner. And so Clay is the one who's really brokering this deal between the West and the South all throughout the early part of the 19th century. And Clay was, I mean, Clay was a Whig, and what you had in the Whigs essentially were nationalist Republicans, people that had supported Jefferson's economic program in his second term. So all that said, people recognized that this was a political question more than a moral question. And I think what's happened now is that people tend to look at abolition as a moral question, not a political question. And at the time, uh, by, the, by the late 1850s, you had a lot more Americans concerned about the morality of slavery— uh, both North and South, and the attacks, as the attacks became much more uh, vicious against the South, the South became much more defensive about the institution, and that creates hostility and animosity between the two sections. And so you did start seeing slavery as a moral question begin to be uh, you know, used much more effectively. But for most of American history, it was a political question with a political solution. So Avery Craven's The Coming of the Civil War is very, very good for addressing all of these issues. Uh, it, is, uh, it is superb in its detail. It is superb in its interpretation. 
Uh, I tend to think the blundering generation thesis is, is pretty good. Um, I mean, it's better than some of the others, uh, but it's pretty good. And, and Craven was an excellent historian. So if you can go out, and I'll, and I'll put this in the link you know, under, the, under, the, um, under the description of this podcast, you know, link to the book. But if you can get a book on, on the war, I think that you know, Craven's Coming of the Civil War uh, should be on the top of your wish list. The next book that I would recommend is by a historian who's not well known, but um, he is, uh, was very, very good. And he taught at the College of William and Mary. And his name is Ludwell Johnson, and the book is North Against South, The American Iliad, 1848 to 1877. So the reason I like this particular book, and there are several reasons, uh, again, Johnson is open about his bias. He's a Southerner, and he's, he's telling the story that actually gives Southerners uh, some due, right? I mean, he, he's not as critical against the South as other people are. And uh, he mentions that, you know, his, the job of a historian is to uh, look at the information and present it as it is given um, and to try to understand. And I think that is important. Historians need to try to understand a period. And you, you take the information that you have and you try to work it out. Uh, and Johnson says that he arrived at his conclusions through primary material. Now, this book was intended to be a textbook, a survey textbook for a college-level course on the sectional conflict and civil war, as it's often called in your in your. Uh, college uh, and university uh, catalog. And so it's a short book on the events leading to the war, the war itself, and then Reconstruction. Um, now, Reconstruction often ends at 1877. I don't think it ever did. We're still living in a Reconstruction, a recreation of the United States, so to speak. But um, Johnson gets into uh, all the issues, and he and he does a very good job in a short amount of space or a small amount of space in talking about the war, including the major military campaigns, uh, the political aspects, the economic aspects. He, he goes into issues like slavery and uh, the economy and all those things. He does a very good job with this. And he has one of the best, particularly in a survey like this, a best description of the Fort Sumter episode that I've ever seen from a historian in explaining Lincoln's role in that particular event. Because the common narrative, of course, is that the South fired first, and so they started the war. What Johnson outlines in this particular uh, book is that it's not so clear. It's, it's not so uh, you know, cut and dry as that. That Lincoln was actually agitating for provisioning Fort Sumter, even when his cabinet, save one, his postmaster, was saying, don't provision the fort. Even when his top military uh, circle was saying, don't provision the fort. You're going to start the war. And Lincoln wanted to do it anyways. So in so many ways, what Johnson does is take the information and turn it back on Lincoln and saying, well, wait a second. Uh, this, was an, this was a hostile act because Lincoln knew exactly what he was doing. And he actually wrote the letter to the governor of South Carolina saying, we're going to provision the fort. He just didn't sign it, but he wrote it. And essentially, yeah, we're, you're, we're going to war. And so, uh, you know, Johnson turns the war back on Lincoln. And there's another very uh, good book that's done this recently. It's by a guy named William Marvel. And it's, uh, the title of the book is Mr. Lincoln Goes to War. And he turns the war back on Lincoln. And uh, again, these are often called revisionist histories. But really what they are is post-revisionist histories because, um, you know, for years, Lincoln— now. Uh, you know, when you look at you know the, Lincoln's reputation after the war, Lincoln's reputation was fairly intact because 
uh, of a deal cut where Southerners essentially said, look, we won't criticize Lincoln, just don't criticize us as much. And so for a time, the South was not criticized. And I think that's un- that's unfair uh, for the entire United States. The South did have issues and needed to be criticized for some of the things that it was doing. Uh, but Lincoln escaped criticism. And so what these books are doing is attacking Lincoln and showing Lincoln as not necessarily the saint that we've often considered him to be as he sits at the Lincoln Memorial. And when I wrote my nine presidents who screw up America, I mean, there's a chapter on Lincoln in that book. And lo and behold, I knew it was going to happen. Everyone zeroed in on that particular chapter and said, how can you criticize Abraham Lincoln? Because he's, he's an American saint, a demigod, so to speak. But Johnson does a very good job of taking him apart when he needs to. He's also uh, very even-handed in his treatment of the North and the South, which I, th- which I think is good. Now, of course, his bias comes out in the book at times, but he does attempt to be as even-handed as possible uh, with the material that he has and the mastery of the material that, that, uh, that he has as well. So I often recommend North Against South. Um, the subtitle is The American Italy at 1848 to 1877. Again, I'll link to this book. And I've mentioned a couple of the books, Mr. Lincoln Goes to War and The Political Crisis of the 1850s, both very good. Michael Holt is an excellent historian. Um, he's written a great book on Reconstruction. He's written a fantastic um, monster tome on the Whig Party. Um, so he's really a, a really good historian. Um, but what you often get, and even on my reading seminars, I didn't have any of this stuff. Uh, none of these books, neither one of these books were assigned. I think we had uh, a glancing look at what's called the Blundering Generation School. Uh, there were other people like James Randall who were part of that. Uh, and we had a glancing look at that particular field, uh, that particular thought uh, in, in, uh, in American historiography. But uh, most of our uh, reading material was uh, journal articles, um, most of them very new journal, very recent journal articles, because essentially that's what historians do. They, it's, it's, a, it's a profession and it's an industry, and you have throngs of university professors and throngs of graduate students, and their job is to produce monographs and not only that, journal articles now. So you get out in your academic journals and you write. A lot of these things aren't really worth the paper that they're written on. Uh, the monographs are so pedantic and uh, so, I mean, so poorly written that no one outside of the academic community would want to read them. Um, and so this is the this is years ago I, I saw a speech by Shelby Foote uh, when I was at South Carolina and he said look one of the things historians need to do is learn how to write because our job is to is to convey material to the public and historians do a very bad job of that writers need to learn how to get their history right but historians need to learn how to write so they can use each other and Shelby Foote essentially was a writer who wrote about history uh, and he did a very good job with that. So uh, one of the things I'll leave you with as I was in graduate school, and you can do this even when you're not in graduate school, but I remember uh, my advisor in graduate school would, uh, would implore us to read, read, read. Uh, read as much as you can. Don't shy away from things that don't agree with you or that you don't think you're going to agree with. You'll find something in all of them. Uh, read as much as you can. Uh, this is what, uh, you know... <laughs> Edward Gibbon used to say he was scribbling, scribbling, scribbling as he's writing his masterful uh, history on the Roman uh, Empire, but a uh, history of Rome. But read as much as you can. I've given you, as, a, as your professor in this podcast, a couple of books you should go out and read. Uh, there are s- uh, several other good ones, but uh, this would be a good place to start as a foundation as you go out and explore these other 
histories. And if you have a good understanding of the of the course of events and the narrative itself, uh, and uh, you'll do much better in understanding all of the nuances and all the monographs and historiography around surrounding a certain period. In this case, the sectional conflict and the quote unquote civil war. So I hope you enjoyed this particular podcast. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show.